Last week, I told you the first part of a story about my interactions with a woman named Nina, who was my opposing counsel on the biggest case of my legal career. And as I, I mentioned, Nina was, was sharp, and she was young, and she was aggressive, and she was trying to make a name for herself at her large law firm. And she was doing so by subjecting me to some very confrontational and often unethical practices in her practicing law. And in response to her mean behavior, I found myself trying to match her. I found myself plotting and scheming as to how I could be just as mean in return. And that had an impact on the relationships in my life. I spent nearly all of my waking hours and quite a few of my dreaming hours trying to figure out how I could get her back and how I could fight fire with fire and how I could beat her at her own mean game. And at first, I decided to do what most people would do. I did to her what she was doing to me. I delayed, I dragged my feet when it came to answering any of her requests. I raised valid but not vital objections. I just objected for the sake of objecting and I filed unnecessary motions just so I could cause her to do some extra work and cost her client more money. And when she called my office for information or clarification, I, I gave back what she was giving me. I didn't take her calls. So whether I intended to or not, I was slowly becoming something that I neither wanted nor expected to become. I was becoming a mean person too. It's easy. It's easy to be mean back to mean people. It's easy to be unkind to people who have been unkind to us. It's easy to forget about the golden rule when it comes to mean people. Remember, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. It's much, much easier and much, much more logical to apply what we call the Damascus Steel Rule and do unto others just as they do unto you. Give them back what they're giving you. But there's a problem with this kind of thinking. Because trying to get even with mean people never fixes anything. In fact, trying to get even with mean people only makes things worse. Because the problem with getting even is that it makes us even with someone we don't even like. Why would I want to be like somebody I don't like? And yet there we are. It makes us like someone that we dislike. So what do we do about it? Well, there are a lot of approaches we can take. A lot of us feel that we're not confrontational. And I included myself in that conversation, but I, I'm really not a part of that. I am quite confrontational. Or I can be. It's one of my spiritual gifts. But a lot of people just ignore mean people. But when you ignore mean people, it gives them more power which is not a good long-term strategy. It's kind of like being severely wounded and then just bandaging up the wound, like covering it up so you can't see it anymore without cleaning it out, without disinfecting it. Because on the outside, it looks like the problem has been handled, but before long, that problem comes back meaner and more painful and more dangerous than ever before. If you have a deep gash and you cover it up without cleaning it, it's going to get infected. It's going to go bad. It's going to go septic. It's not a good thing. So ignoring is not, a, not the answer. Now, acting like mean people is even worse. Because most of us 
have at least one instance in our lives in which we responded to mean people by becoming mean ourselves, which only led us to more heartache. We, we kind of wish we'd never done that as we look back on it. So if trying to ignore them or becoming like them doesn't work, what does work? Well, there is an option available to us that takes away some of their power but sets us up to protect all of our relationships from that toxic overflow that mean people cause us to spill on to others. We, we talked about that in the last series. You know, if we have a jar filled with Skittles and you bump the jar, happy Skittles fall out. It's nice. But if you have a jar filled with bitter, bitter water, guess what happens when you bump it? Bitterness comes out. And so... I'm referring here particularly to the situation where you're dealing with someone who's just blasting you with meanness. But you soon figure out that they don't have an issue with you. They're being mean to you, but they don't really have an issue with you. They have an issue with somebody else, and they're just taking out their frustrations on you. Now, Jesus taught and modeled this coming option for us. And before Jesus taught and modeled it, it was modeled for us by a woman named Abigail. So, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take a look at Abigail's story. Won't you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for bringing everyone here from wherever they, wherever they were. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to sort of cap off last week with some time together with you, some time celebrating you, some time understanding you. And thank you for this opportunity to start this new week connected to you and connected to your community. God, as we take a look at your word today, we would ask that you would use it to transform our hearts, transform our minds, and draw us closer to you. We thank you for this time, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Abigail's story comes to us from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as we call it. Now, Abigail is, for lack of a better description, she's kind of part of the background story of King David. So if you don't know the story of King David, Abigail's not going to come up, but she's part of the background story. And here's how it goes. Now, most of you know a little bit about King David. We talked a little bit about that last week. We did a series on King David a few months ago. David was a small shepherd boy who, when he was a teenager, became famous in their area after he slayed the most formidable fighter of the Philistines, Israel's most vicious enemy. Remember his name? Goliath. Okay, it's become part of the, part of the milieu of our culture. Everybody knows what David and Goliath means. But in the story, David slayed Goliath, and the Hebrew king Saul saw this and decided, hmm, this David, he might be something. I gotta, I gotta keep him close. I have to, I have to keep an eye on him. You know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. So, so King Saul made David a part of his family. David married one of Saul's daughters. And last week we talked about how when King Saul discovered that a prophet had gone to David when David was a young boy and anointed David as the king of Israel, the next king of Israel, King Saul was enraged. Why? Because he had a son too. He just assumed his son, Jonathan, would be the next king of Israel, but that's not the way it worked out. So Saul was upset with David. 
He tried to kill David. David fled into the wilderness, and this is where today's story begins. Now, we encounter Abigail during the season of life where David was a fugitive from Saul. Now, remember, we talked about this last week. When David was on the run from King Saul, he gathered around him a force of about 600 men, which when you say that in the Bible, you also know that you know, most of these men are married and most of these men have children. So it was a force of about 600 men and their wives and their children. So it was quite the entourage that traveled around with David. Now, during that time, David was very angry with King Saul. And he was angry because, well, first off, he was a fugitive. And because David had no way to get King Saul, King Saul's the king. And a shepherd boy like David, there's just no way he could get to the king and take, get rid of the king, nor would he get rid of the king because David, of course, believed in God and God had anointed King Saul. So David's like, I can't kill God's anointed. That would come up in another story. But because David had no way to get to King Saul, David just allowed that anger to continue to build up in him and then it overflowed onto everybody around him. He was really frustrated that he wanted to do something about Saul, but since he couldn't, he just bottled it up and it just spilled on everyone else. Well, this is where we meet Abigail. So we're going to go back and just quickly go through the beginning of this story that we saw last week. So here's a few verses. We go to 1 Samuel 25. We're starting in verse 2. This is in the Old Testament. I'll give you all the verses on the screen. A certain man in my own who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and, there's our word, mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, remember what happened. Because David was aware that this rich man, Nabal, was about to get richer, he was about to have another sheep shearing, another time to sell his wares, sell the wool, David sent 10 of his men to Nabal to say to him, hey, Nabal, would you be willing to share some of your profits with me and my men. David felt entitled to make this request because as we read in verse 7, when Nabal's shepherds were with David's men, David's men didn't mistreat the shepherds. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. In other words, David was thinking, our men could have taken whatever they wanted from you. We had more power. We had better weapons. Our people are soldiers. Your people are shepherds. This would have been easy. But instead, and you can ask your men about this, nothing went missing. In other words, your prophet, David was saying to the men of Nabal, is, is due in part to our protection of you. You're welcome. Well, in response, Nabal quite rudely dismissed David and his request outright. Here's what Nabal said when he heard this. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Uh, he must be one of those rebellious servants. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. So he was really disrespectful when he heard David's name. It was like, who, new phone, who dis, right? I mean, who's David? He knew who David was. He was just pretending he didn't. He was playing it off. Who's this guy? Oh, he's just an outlaw, very dismissive. I, I didn't need his help. I don't need his help. 
I don't owe him a thing. Well, David's men went back to David, reported Nabal's response, to which David replied, Strap on your swords, boys. We're going to uh, go start some trouble. David strapped on his sword as well. And with that, out of the 600, about 400 men went with David to Carmel. 200 stayed back to, to take care of the women and children. And as we noted last week, this was an overreaction. This was quite an overreaction. This was going to be an absolute bloodbath, an absolute massacre. So as David and his men are heading toward the conflict, David in his mind, and you do this too, if you ever have a presentation to make or you're nervous about getting up in front of a group of people, what do you do? You give yourself some self-talk. You could do this. You got this, man. They deserve it. Or this is going to be good. You're, you're, psyching, you're psyching yourself up. So David is, is stealing himself for the attack. So here's what he's grumbling under his breath. It's been useless all of my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness. So that nothing of his was missing. Like, why did I help this guy out? He has paid me back evil for my good. How dare he? I'll give him a who's that. How dare he respond to my good deed with such disrespect? This is David's mindset. And then David sort of, sort of, gives a hat tip to God, invites God into the situation, sort of. So it's like this is when we make our decision and we know exactly what we're going to do. And then we say to God, would you please bless my decision? This is pretty much what you're seeing here. Here's what he says. May God, he, David is praying. May God deal with David. He's speaking of himself in the third person. Be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male, one, leave alive one male of all who belong to him. So David's saying, I have made up my mind. I am going to kill every single one of them. And may God deal with me severely if I don't. You see what he did? That's not what God told him to do. He decided what to do. He's going to kill everybody. And he said, God, I'm going to kill everybody, I promise you. And if I don't, you can deal with me severely. That is not exactly bringing God into your situation. Anyway, so as we read of this situation, we are 3,000 years in the future. And as we read it, we're thinking, wow, Dave, he didn't share with you? And you want to murder everybody? You're going to slaughter all of them? But that's what David was thinking. That was what was on David's mind. David was angry, and David was hurt. And when you add to that his frustration with King Saul, that he couldn't get to King Saul, he couldn't take out his rage on the true subject of his rage, King Saul, David was about to take out his rage on another person. And he was about to unleash evil for evil in an epic way. So now we'll pick up where we left off last week. So, okay, so we have this set up. Meanwhile, back in Carmel. So this is interesting. You know, the Bible, it's funny. When you read the Bible, it, it doesn't follow in a linear fashion all the time, and it sort of jumps back and forth. So you have to pay attention to where it's going. So now we're going to kind of jump back here a little bit. And here's what was going down when David was having all these thoughts. So in 1 Samuel 25, 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, about those messengers. David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but our master hurled insults at them. And then the person reporting back to Abigail said, yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the field near them, nothing was missing. So in other words, they were saying, you know, David's right. He really did make it so that Nabal could make a lot of money. His, David's men really did protect Nabal's sheep. 
The servant goes on, night and day, David's men were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them, now think it over and see what you can do, Abigail, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. They knew David was mad. They knew something was coming. And so they went to Abigail and said, please do something about this. We're about to die. And he goes on, Nabal, he is such a wicked man that nobody can talk to him. So what does Abigail do? She gets right on it. She acts quickly. So here's what she did. Verse 18, she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, this is your dessert, and loaded them on donkeys. And then she said to her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell Nabal, her husband, the mean guy, what she was doing. So what did Abigail do here? She Essentially, Abigail invented the food truck. Do you notice this? She gathered up a bunch of donkeys, they didn't have trucks back then, tied them all together, loaded them up with food, right? Just to send them to the festival, and everybody can have what they want. Oh, there's the falafel donkey, there's the sushi donkey, all this one, right? Okay. Maybe she didn't invent the food truck, but she invented the precursor to the food truck. You can look this up. It's called the food donkey. So that's part of it. All right. So without telling her husband Nabal, Abigail heads out to the place where David and his men were. And when Abigail enters the valley, we go to verse 20. There was David and his men. They're coming down off the hill, descending toward her in the valley. And she went out and met David's men. She saw David and his army walking her way. David's working up ahead of steam. David's grumbling to himself, getting himself madder and madder. How dare that guy not pay attention to me? Just me. Grumbling himself. He was terribly wrong by Nabal. When the valley was in sight, so David's cresting the hill. He sees the valley. He sees a gathering of food donkeys being led by a beautiful woman. Like most men, when encountering ample free food, And a beautiful woman, David's anger, evaporated. That, by the way, works for you ladies today. Be there with free food. If the man in your life is angry with you, he'll just put an end to it right there. David's anger evaporated like the the evening dew off a hood of a car. Does that ever happen to you? You ever have that experience? You're heading into the office or you're heading back home and you've got your fight all worked out in your head and I'm going to say this and you're going to say that and you're getting ready to go for the person who's got you so mean or got you so, was so mean to you and, and that person just comes to you and says, oh, I'm so sorry. They just humbly apologize. Or they do something really nice for you like you show up at, at your office and there's flowers on your desk or candy on your desk or a nice Starbucks or something and you go, oh. It takes all the air out of your anger balloon, doesn't it? So here we have David, who along with this little army is just spoiling for a fight. And then he was greeted like this, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Like that is just a sign of complete submission. You bow down face to the ground. She falls at his feet and she begins to speak to David not addressing him as the vengeful maniac that he was acting like, but she had spoke to him rather as this wise and powerful leader that she hoped he would be. 
This approach is foolproof as well. Let me tell you a little story. When I was in high school, in my weight training class, one of my classmates was a six foot five inch football player named Alan. That is his real first name. Alan, by the way, went on to win a Super Bowl ring. He's number 76 in the white shirt with the Dallas Cowboys as a starting offensive lineman. This is a big fella, okay? Well, anyway, Alan was goofing around in our weight training class. And as a result, our coach, Coach Almeida, told the whole class, you know what? You knuckleheads are going to run wind sprints for the next half an hour. Nobody was happy about that, right? The weather was like this. It was horrible. And because I am a natural, wise guy, <laughs> under my breath, I made a snarky comment about Alan. And he heard me. Of course he heard me. That's how that goes. So he came over to me. I'm six feet tall. I don't know if I was back then. Maybe I weighed 140 pounds soaking wet. And he pushed me. And he informed me that my life was over. Okay? He was going to kill me. That's what he said. And instead of trying to fight him, I chose to compliment him. I said, Alan, you're the biggest, strongest guy in this school. You don't want to hurt me. People will think you're a bully and not the leader that I know that you are. I don't know where I got this from, but there it was. I said, wouldn't you rather take responsibility and tell Coach Almeida that it was you who was goofing around and that you're the one who should be punished and not the whole class? And then I held my breath for about a month and a half. So it seemed. <laughs> sure, as a few seconds. That seemed like a few years. And Alan grunted something like, yeah, I am a great leader. <laughs> I was thinking, you fell for that? It was great. <laughs> and he turned to Coach Almeida. He said, Coach, I'm the one who did it. They don't have to run. And we all went, phew, it works, okay? So anyway, here's what Abigail says to David. Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. She's being so deferential to David. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. She's talking about her husband. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. In other words, Abigail says to David, you're right. My husband is a fool. My husband is a jerk. But, verse 25, as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men my lord sent. In other words, she says, I wasn't there. Because otherwise, I surely would have been able to persuade my husband to be reasonable with you. Verse 26, and now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. So you see what she's doing here? She's talking to David. She stopped him from killing all of Nabal's men. And David must have paused and thought, Oh, God stopped me? Huh, interesting. And she's like, yeah, God did it. And then Abigail was saying to David, now I know you're not the kind of man who would avenge yourself on a defenseless person like my rotten husband, right? And David's like, yeah, of course not. Uh, of course I'm not that kind of bad person. Thank you for noticing. This is like the typical, these are not the droids you're looking for conversation. Then Abigail gives him credit for being a better man. 
which he certainly had not earned by that point. Verse 27, and let this gift, Abigail's still talking, which your servant, she's talking about herself, which I have brought to you, be given to the men who follow you. Now, it's not clear whether David had realized it yet, but Abigail's plan completely foiled his plan. How could David possibly carry out the murder of Nabal's men after Nabal's wife essentially gave David everything he was going to take in the first place? Like he already won the battle without ever fighting. So Abigail continues. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Again, it gets confusing. Lord your God is God. My Lord is my Lord. You know, she's talking to David. For my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles. And David's thinking, I do? I fight the Lord's battles? Uh, yeah, of course I do. I fight the Lord's battles. And Abigail continued, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. And David thought, it won't? And Abigail said, no, it won't. Verse 29, even though, and then she referenced King Saul. Everyone knew who David was, and everyone knew why he was a fugitive. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life. So now you can see that, that Nabal, of course, knew who David was. Everybody in the kingdom knew that Saul was after David. So here's how she shows you. Even though someone is pursuing you, King Saul, to take your life, the life of my Lord, David, will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Now check out the imagery here. This is really cool. She was saying, that even though somebody was trying to kill him, kill David, the Lord God would keep David safe and secure and hidden away from anyone who wanted him dead. Then Abigail, she's, she's really, she's got this planned out. And so now she goes to, goes to David's pride and she hearkens back to the teenage David when he faced Goliath. And so she says, but the lives of your enemies, God will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. So she's saying now, you know what, David? Don't worry about your enemies. Just like you killed Goliath from the pocket of a sling, God will take care of this. Abigail was reminding David of how God had been faithful to David in the past. So she's saying to him, David, you don't need to exact this revenge yourself. You don't need to return evil for evil. You don't need to get even. David, remember how God stepped in for you before? God was with you then when you were a teenager. God is with you now. And then Abigail looks into the future. And she asks the same question that we asked and looked at last week. The same question that we've asked ourselves before, which was in essence, David, when, when this story is nothing but a story you want to tell, what story do you want to tell? Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord everything good he promised concerning, whoa, concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, sorry about that, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed of having avenged himself. So she's saying to David, David, isn't this a better story? Isn't it better if you can look back on this moment and know you did the right thing? You don't want to look back on this moment and know that you held back. You didn't listen to God. You don't want to look back on this moment and know that you didn't listen. 
You want to you wanna know that you did the right thing, that you listened to God, that you didn't take matters into your own hands. And this is something that David needed to hear. Because at that moment, David snaps out of it. And he realizes he's about to act like somebody he doesn't even like. So he says to Abigail, it's almost like you could feel the turn here, feel the switch, because he goes, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you, Abigail, to me today. <sighs> Thank you for intervening. Thank you for stepping in. Thank you for talking me down. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. So thankful was David for Abigail's counsel that kept him from committing a horrendous atrocity that David says to Abigail, go home in peace. I've heard your words and I've granted your request. Don't we all need an Abigail in our lives? I hope we all have somebody like that. Somebody when we're about to do something crazy, we can pick up the phone or we can go see him and go, I'm about to do this, what do I do? We all need somebody who can talk us down when we're all amped up. We all need somebody who has our permission. That's important. Our permission to speak into our lives, into those areas that we usually don't let people speak into. We need at least one of those people in our lives. We really do. As long as we're willing to listen to those people when they show up. See, isn't it true? that one or more of our greatest regrets in life could have been avoided if we'd had an Abigail in our life and we listened to her or him? Wouldn't, wouldn't it? Like, if we could just go back and, oh, boy, I wish I never said that. I wish I never did that. I wish I did that differently. That's the lesson from the David and Abigail story. I want to tell you the rest of the story just to put a bow on it. We go to verse 36. When Abigail went to Nabal, her mean husband... He was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. So he was going, there's a rager going on, okay? He was in high spirits. He was very drunk. Did you know all the stuff's in the Bible? It's crazy the stuff is in the Bible. This sounds like a show on HBO or what do they call it, Max now. She told Nabal nothing until daybreak. He was too wild and too drunk to tell anything. Then the next morning when Nabal was sober, this is in the Bible. His wife told him all these things, and he had a heart attack, okay? His heart failed him, and he became like a stone. It was like Mitch McConnell in front of the mic the other day, just like, right? And then, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. This is nuts, right? Since your husband just died, you know? But of course, Abigail, she's like, oh, no, now you want me? No, that actually didn't happen. Abigail quickly got on a donkey, took some of her female servants, went to David's messengers, and became his wife. Like, this is like, I'm in. Wow, Whew, I'm in. Marry me. And so ends that story. So let's recap and see how this story impacts us. In this story, we had three main characters and three different approaches, but we only had one hero. Our characters were Nabal, David, and Abigail. And their approaches were to return evil for good, return evil for evil, and finally return good for evil. As a mean person, Nabal's approach was to return evil for good, as mean people are wont to do. David did a good thing, 
Nabal was mean. Nabal's action was reprehensible. Now, David here represents the typical person who's following the Damascus steel rule. He wants to do unto others as they have done unto him. He wants to return Nabal's evil with his own evil. His reaction was predictable. And Abigail was a godly, level-headed person. She returned good for evil. Her reaction was remarkable. We are faced with the same choices all the time. And if you're not a Jesus follower, choose whatever choice you wish. It's up to you. If you're not a Jesus follower, have at it. Of course, hopefully you'll follow Abigail's lead, but that's entirely your decision. But if you are a Jesus follower, if you're among the people who wake up every day and say to our Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to surrender to you everything, everything that I am. I want to surrender to you my eyes and my ears and my will and my life and my resources. I want to, to the best of my ability, Lord, follow you today. If that describes you, only one of these options is available to you. Because first, as followers of Jesus, we've been gifted with something that is truly remarkable. We've been gifted with something that is so remarkable, and we've been commanded to model it. It's truly amazing. What is it that God has given us that we're, chose to mo- that we're, that we're commanded to model? You already know that. It's God's amazing grace. The Apostle Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Jesus, who died for our sins, said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross every single day and follow me. And we always ask the question, well, how do we do that? Well, we need to follow Jesus when he tells us to love your enemies. And even though when you hear this, you might be inclined to think, okay, got it, put up with, but ignore our enemies. Jesus said, no, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, I want you not only to do good, not to just ignore and not just not be unkind. I want you to affirmatively do good for the people who hate you. To which we often respond, Lord, do do you mean you just want us to smile at our enemies and pretend like we like them? Jesus said, no, that's still not it. I want you to love your enemies, do good. That's affirmative. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Does anybody do this? No. For being honest. We would admit that I don't even spend a lot of time praying for the people who treat me well, let alone the people who are mean to me. But Jesus actually wants us to do that. Jesus actually wants us to pray for the people who mistreat us. Jesus wants us to do something for them so we won't be like them. Because when we pray for them and do good to them, we'll actually start becoming more like our Father in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So here's a question. 
Do you have mean people in your life? Well, what would it look like in your situation if you actually did good to those who hate you? What would it look like to return good for evil? I was becoming more and more like my opposing counsel, Nina. Someone who at the time I didn't really like at all. But I found myself trying to fight fire with fire. I was trying to out-mean a mean person. But it was killing me. So after about a week of doing that, I finally took it to God. And I started to seriously pray about it. This story is entirely true. And I started to seek God's guidance. And a few minutes in, God does to me what he always does to me. He gave me a nice, strong punch in the head. Metaphorically speaking, of course. I didn't have to dig too deeply before I cleverly discovered God's position on the matter. I didn't have to be a Bible scholar to find my answer. Jesus told me, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And God reminded me that a gentle answer turns away wrath. So I cleverly deduced that, that God apparently wanted me to fight fire, not with fire, but with love. I hadn't been doing that. So after my little encounter with God, I decided to try something else, recalling the adage, hurt people, hurt people. So one afternoon, I called Nina to ask her about some more documents that she was withholding. She took my call, actually. We talked about my document request. I persuaded her to agree to send me what I asked for. And then right before we hung up, I said, hey, do you mind if I ask you a non-legal question? She's like, hmm, okay, sure. I said, is there anything I can pray about for you? Silence on the other side of the phone. And after what seemed like an eternity, her voice was kind of broken when she talked back to me. She kind of croaked out the question, what did you just ask me? I said, is there anything I can pray about for you? Another long pause. She said, why did you ask me that? And I said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And God has prompted me to ask you if you needed some prayer. Do you? Do you need some prayer? With that, she started to cry. Not just not just a little sniffle, like, like bawling, heaving, crying. Because you see, what I didn't know until that moment was that she'd recently become a new mother. And her newborn daughter was in the hospital with something that doctors were struggling to diagnose. And then she told me the whole story. She told me how scared she was and how scared her husband was. And she told me how she was so lost and so confused. She explained to me she had, she'd been a churchgoer when she was young. She, she grew up in central Florida. But she stopped going to church in college and hadn't bothered with God since. So I prayed with her, and I prayed over her and her family. And in that moment, I felt, wow, God has me exactly where he needs me to be. I felt God working through me. And if you know me well enough, you know I don't say stuff like that. But this was, man, this is amazing. I don't know how long I prayed. I don't typically like long prayers, but I lost track of time. It was like totally surreal, that moment. Once I was done, I gave her my cell number. I said, listen, I'm going to check in on you every day to see how your daughter's doing. Huh. 
Waterworks began again, she started crying, and through the tears, she thanked me profusely, and she said she looked forward to talking to me on the next day. This woman would not take my calls for months. And then about two weeks from that point, her daughter was well enough to come home. And from that moment on, I lost an enemy and gained a friend. Our, our case went on for another two years after that. And every time we talked, at the end of our conversation, I prayed for her. And I continued to lift her up in my morning prayers. And you know what happened? She stopped playing mean games with me on her case. And she began to handle everything from that moment ethically and honestly. We met in person for the first time in 2001 in New York City on the 16th floor of the World Trade Center, three months before 9-11. There she told me that she and her family had returned to church and that she'd never been happier. As for the case, God delivered to me a star witness at the 11th hour who just busted the case wide open. And because of that witness's testimony, had the witness on the stand for eight hours. As soon as her testimony was over, Nina's client settled with us on the eve of trial. So here's what happened. I'd made a friend out of an enemy and God blessed me immensely once I stopped trying to be like someone I didn't even like and instead followed Jesus and loved as he commanded me to love. And so here's the point for all of us. God does not want us to write a predictable story. God does not want us to write an evil for evil story. Even if the world would tell us that it's justified to be evil to somebody who's been evil to us, in our lives, as people of Jesus, we have it far, far better. In situations where we are dealing with the mean people in our lives, we, we simply can't pass up this fantastic opportunity that that presents us with. Because the meaner they are, the brighter our light has the opportunity to shine. And I know full well that it's easy for me to stand up here and say that, but please understand this. I am not asking you to follow me. I'm encouraging you to follow our Savior. And I'm encouraging you to write a remarkable story when you do for others what they don't deserve from you. And even though it probably won't change anything in them, because that's the reality of life, it will always do something for you. It'll make you more like your Father in heaven. So last week we looked at four questions. I'd like to leave you with those same four questions again as you consider this lesson through the filter of your own circumstances. Number one, do you want to be even with somebody you don't even like? Of course you don't. Wouldn't you rather be ahead? Of course you would, absolutely. But you'll never get ahead by getting even. And when this situation is nothing more than a story you'll tell, what story do you want to tell? It's great practice to begin asking yourself this question whenever you're in a situation where your faith stands in opposition to the way that you're inclined to go. But I tell you, start trying to trust God and then watch what God does in your life. And finally, what would it look like if instead of doing what came naturally, what would it look like if you returned good for evil? You at least owe it to yourself to explore an answer to this question. Because when you have the courage to step into this counterintuitive space, 
that moment will do something in you that you might just talk about for the rest of your life. Because in that moment, you will be most like your Father in heaven. And that's my hope for all of us. My hope is that we all, every day, can draw closer to the one who gave us and sustains us through this life. You've come this far. Don't miss out on all that God has for you. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here. Thank you for the hearts that you've brought. Thank you for the situations that you've put each one of us in giving us this opportunity to stand as your light, to stand as your witnesses. God, allow us to push against our inclination to return evil for evil and help us to to gravitate toward what you've called us to do is love as you have loved us. God, allow us to see that work in our lives and allow us to understand that it all comes from you. God, we thank you for this. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.